Well, thank you for you not going home. I appreciate that very much. I always wonder after I do one of these sessions if I come back if anybody's going to still be here. But anyway, let's have a word of prayer and we'll just get right back into this real quick. Father God, I just ask for your help and uh, in both in helping me to communicate and for these good folks to listen as the evening gets late. Um, God, it's amazing that you are able to speak into our lives in ways that we couldn't even imagine. And we just ask that you would do that this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that uh, those who have been really trying to move the world towards a, a global governance type of perspective have run into is that they haven't been able to find anything that really motivates people in a general sense, and that uh, even today, a recent survey that was taken following the uh, terrorist attack in San Bernardino, that 97% of Americans said that their major concern was uh, terrorism. Uh, only 3% said they were concerned about global warming or climate control. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, that, that's pretty perplexing because how do you get people to really feel some kind of passion about something? Because essentially, most, one of the earlier quotes I had where it has to come from the bottom up. There has to be kind of a grassroots movement to, in order to get people to, to become enthusiastically s supportive of something, at least until you get your uh, structures, you take over the instruments of government, and then you can legislate and you can force people through police powers and other things to do what you want them to do. But for many decades, the emphasis, you know, really was upon the, uh, the nuclear destruction and the need for world peace as kind of unifying factors for people against the evil forces in the world. Then the Soviet Union collapsed, and that threat apparently went away. Now jihadism has become the big issue. But really, it's, it's fascinating how that climate control, or basically uh, climate change, has, has come to the forefront. In fact, what it's metastasized into is actually a religious or spiritual movement. Um, in fact, a, a story in the, from the San Jose Mercury News uh, entitled Climate Change, it says, scientists turn to faith to enlicit supporters. It reads as follows, it says, the environment movement, which has primarily been a secular one, has realized that over the last 30 years or so, it's not been that successful in achieving its goals. <clears throat> and so uh, uh, Joe Ware, who's up with an organization called Christian Aid, uh, wrote in an email from the Paris Peace Talks. He said, quote, Increasingly, it has looked to faith groups for help in mobilizing a broader movement of people calling for action on climate change. They are actually natural allies, as almost all faiths have a theology of creation care at their heart. In other words, he says all religious faiths have an idea that you know, the planet was created by God and that there's a responsibility we have to care for it. Another article in the Toronto Star from uh, September 2014 was talking about the uh, role of the World Council of Churches, uh, an organization that represents more than a half billion Christians from over 100 nations, along with Religions for Peace, will be organizing, it said, an interfaith summit on climate change. And it goes on to say, accenting the participation of indigenous groups and youth, the summit will conclude with concrete action pledges to address climate change. The Interfaith Summit dovetails with an interfaith workshop bringing together Aboriginal, Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Indic scholars to reflect on their traditions in the light of climate change. 
So you get all these different religious groups talking about each sharing with one another how their group has their own view on, on, on climate change and the effect. Then ask the question. This is where it gets, I thought, kind of interesting. It says, why are faith groups becoming so involved in climate change? Number one, first, it says, climate change has become one of the world's most pressing ethical issues. Climate change is not a scientific issue. Now it's an ethical, moral issue. As become one of the, excuse me, as, as has become clear through the work of the World Council of Churches and other groups, the poor of the world consistently bear the brunt of climate change through flooding, drought, dislocation, and will continue to suffer severely as climate change deepens. You know, I think everybody suffers from those things when they happen. I mean, I don't think it's relegated to the poor, but the implication is that poverty is the consequence of climate factors. That's the first time I ever heard anybody make that proposition before. Um, of course, if you can write it down and print it, I guess it becomes true. He goes on, all the world's spiritual and religious traditions embrace an ethical framework, many of which focus on the special needs of the poor. Climate change thus falls within the heartland of these spiritual teachings. They just built a bridge between things that I don't even know how they got there. I mean, it's, it's intellectually really kind of fallacious. But he goes on, secondly... Climate change raises fundamental spiritual questions. What is our proper place here? What is our role as humans within the created world? And in the case of changing the very climate of the planet, what on earth are we doing? In other words, suddenly I'm supposed to feel like I have sinned against God because the climate is changing. I am responsible. It goes on, while science and policy are critical aspects of the climate change, climate change debate, so too are these foundational, ethical, and spiritual questions. So now, suddenly, the foundational and spiritual, ethical questions that we need to concern ourselves with is the climate change. That's the number one religious focus, okay? Which religions are helping to bring to the fore through such international climate gatherings? Many in the Jewish Christian tradition have, in response, revisited the notion of steward as the proper role for human family, noting biblical passages proclaiming that the earth is God's, not ours. These voices highlight the world's, world is neither our jungle gym or our dumpster. Rather, it is a gift we will be held accountable for if we trash it. Now, what's really interesting to me is that as I read Scripture, especially places like 2 Peter 3.10, it tells me very clearly that God intends to trash the world. He says, everything here will be dissolved. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, yeah, I'm not, certainly not suggesting that we abuse the planet that we are part of. But the whole notion that this is the primary function of our religious responsibility is to care for the planet is something that is a, a perverse twisting of certainly biblical, uh, script, biblical teaching. But it goes on saying, with more than 85% of the human family embracing a religious tradition, the role of faith groups in helping articulate a moral and ethical response to climate change is not only important, but essential. 
Such responses can serve not only as ethical guides, but as refreshing wellsprings of hope within a climate-changed future. The long and short of what they just said was that part of the way that they are going to attempt to move people towards a global governance is to get people to embrace the idea that we have a spiritual responsibility to care for the world by being climate sensitive and not doing anything that would harm the climate. That we have an obligation. That we're in sin if we, we drive carbon-based vehicles. And if our carbon footprint is too large and we're putting too much CO2, if you're throwing your plastic bottle, water bottles in the trash instead of the recycle bin, I don't know what kind of an animal you are. I mean, <clears throat> I've heard that some of you have actually put your light bulbs and your, your batteries in the garbage. We'll be visiting you soon. But do you get my drift, I hope? I mean, it's like suddenly, this is, what is the most important spiritual issue facing humanity today? The Bible says that people reject Jesus and are going to hell is the biggest issue that we should be concerned about as far as humanity is concerned. And they're saying, no, the biggest concern we have is that we recycle and not harm the planet. Now, you might sit back and say, who in the world would buy into this notion? Well, in 1997, the United Nations launched what they called the United Religions Initiative. Um, if you, I did a big, long thing on it back in 97, so you can go back in the archive and pull it up if you want to get into that. But in its formulation, this was the thing that's most interesting, in their formulation of this United Religion Initiative, which was the idea of how do we bring all of the world religions together to create harmony? Because at the time, the argument was that wars are the consequence of religious conflict, which is a fallacious argument. But nonetheless, that was the idea. So if we can get the religions all to have a big group hug and embrace each other, then we can solve so many of the conflicts and we can begin to move forward together as uh, we are the world, we are the people, and so forth and so on. But in their formulation, the Pope was designated as the head of the new religious movement, incorporating all the religious organizations under one banner. Now, Mother Teresa was one of the first ones to actually sign, sign on to this. Actually, she put her pen to paper and said that she was supportive of the idea of the Pope, which kind of makes sense. She was a Catholic after all, so I kind of make it sense, you know. But, um, but Pope John Paul just never responded publicly. He never said anything about it, although he did a great deal to, to really create the idea of the merging of religious movements. He was very active in that. Uh, but it was interesting because in September, uh, the 4th of September, 2014, Shimon Perez, who is uh, probably the most respected political leader and government leader in, uh, in Israel today and around the world. He was the one who brokered peace with Arafat and others along that line. He's a, even Israel today. He's very, very respected and very honored. He uh, shared with Pope Francis, the current pope, that he had an epiphany. He had a revelation, and he asked that if Pope Francis would be willing to assume the role as the spiritual leader of the United Religious Movement of the world. And Francis, although has not clearly said he has agreed, he said he was willing to consider it as an open door and to develop and go forward to see where it would lead. 
Now, this is interesting because right on the heels of this, we have uh, with the summit, the climate conference in, uh, in Paris, we find that the Pope at that point issued a statement basically demanding, essentially saying that it was, there was a moral obligation of the world leaders to come to an agreement at the Paris conference to end this blight upon humanity, as he said, I quoted earlier, so they turned the earth into a, 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 a filthy place with rubbish and so forth and so on. But it's interesting that you know, Pope Francis is really, really popular right now because he has taken a path that is not particularly clear. He's, he's shown a lot of uh, things that were objectionable about previous popes, especially their excesses and their extreme lifestyle and so forth. But also he's basically a waffling on homosexuality, on abortion, on divorce, and a whole number of things that are, are, have been fairly fundamental and dogmatic positions. But in June, on June 9, 2014, he basically criticized what he called fundamentalism in Christianity in Judaism and Islam as well. He made this statement. He said, All fundamental, a fundamentalist group, even if it doesn't strike anyone, is violent. The mentality of fundamentalism is violence in the name of God. Now, how many of you have uh, come to feel like fundamental is a negative word? Uh, I would say probably most of us have kind of like, well, don't call me a fundamentalist, which is unfortunate because it's really a good word because the word fundamental means there are certain things that are foundational to what somebody believes. If you're a Christian, you have certain foundational concepts that you hold to, and to suggest that the foundational concepts should be disregarded, whether you're Christian, Islamic, Judaic, whatever, you need to get rid of it, is, is really a preposterous statement. It's an amazing statement for a man like him to make, or anybody to make, really. Because what we essentially, I mean, I, you, you ask first, what do the fundamentals teach? Not whether they have fundamentals or not. But you kind of get the drift of where the mindset is going in the world. It's going away from being able to be certain about anything except the fact that you're not certain about anything. I'm certain about this. I'm very uncertain. It's like the guy who said, is ambig amb being ambiguous a problem? And the answer is maybe yes, maybe no. You know, it's, that, it's, it's, kind of an, it's kind of an amazing way in which the minds are being changed to think in a certain way and move in a certain direction. Because if you talk about Islamic fundamentalism, I have a problem. Because if I take the fundamentalist position of Islam, there are many things in there that are filled with violence and things that I don't agree with. But to compare that across the board with Christianity is really not even logical, much less fair. And that's why it staggers me. The man who is in the position of being the spiritual leader. But why do people want to attack fundamentals? Well, have you ever watched the implosion of, of large buildings? You ever see those? I'm sure you've all seen those clips of these large skyscrapers and they blow them up and they all come crumbling down. Do you know where they plant the explosives? It's not on the roof. <laughs> it's not in the middle. <laughs> they put them around the foundation. They put the explosives around all the foundation blocks and then they blow it up and they blow the foundation away and the building collapses. And that's essentially, if you can destroy people's foundations, 
then they're malleable and you can do with them as you please, at least to push them out of the way. That's why it's kind of surprising. I mean, gentleman Brock Adams, you probably don't know who he is. He used to be a U.S. congressman and then he was a senator. Then he was secretary of transportation. Today he is the director of the U.N. Health Organization. And here's what he said. To achieve world government, it is necessary to remove from the minds of men their individualism, loyalty to family, traditions, national patriotism, and religious dogmas. Again, dogma is one of those things that, you know, we don't, I, well, I'm not dogmatic. Really? I, I, I wish you were. Because again, what is a dogma? Dogma, again, is the idea that there are certain things that I hold to be true and absolutely true. They're not, they're not negotiables. So that when we look at the Scriptures, there are certain things that are, are dogmas of the faith that if you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian. You know, that's, that's a concept. It's, it's, it's something that's foundational. Again, and here is this, this man who is a congressman, senator, secretary of transportation, now the director of the UN, and saying, we've just got to get people to let go of those dogmas. Dogmas have to go. Which is, again, it's doublespeak and nonsense because everybody believes something is true. It's like I was listening to a debate with Rabbi Zacharias and an a American professor at a university, and, and the professor was explaining to Rabbi Zacharias that the problem with uh, Western thinking is that we live in an either-or way of looking. It's either this or it's that. And he says, but you understand, in the East, it's both and. We look at both and. And I love Dr. Zacharias's response, being an Indian, uh, and having grown up in the Far East, he, he responded by simply saying, Sir, even in India, we look in both directions before we cross the street <laughs> because it's either you or the bus. <laughs> it's not both and. <laughs> and I thought, that's where reality comes into play. I mean, you, you, you realize that there are certain things in life that are just absolutely that way, that I can sit there and say, I do not believe in the concept of gravity. And therefore, I'm going to prove it by jumping off a tall building in a single bound. But I can guarantee you what's going to happen. Gravity is going to win, and I'm going to lose. And that's this, that there are certain things that are absolute facts and realities. And for me to say that I'm a Christian means that I subscribe to certain principles as being absolute truths. And I hold to them, and that's how I govern my life. And this is where I think the challenge is going to come from. Now, am I suggesting that the Pope is the Antichrist or the Church in the Rome is the Scarlet Beast in the book of Revelation? <clears throat> no, not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You know, <laughs> turn in 11, we'll get the full details. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. But I just know that Revelation chapter 16, chapter 19, chapter 20 speaks about this, this, this beast or the Antichrist, this, this world leader who is going to be supported by a false prophet who has a religious arm of this new world government, and they, they're both going to be melded together. And, and, and there are, this is actually something that's going to be happening. And so when I, when I see things like this, it just causes me to pause. Hmm. And say, that's very interesting. Because I'm not saying necessarily this is what's going to happen. I'm just saying the potentiality is, is there. You see, when we talk about 
the end times. As I said in the very beginning, there are so many things that we could address. And, and time doesn't allow me to go into detail to everything. And I know there are some of you who came with questions like, what, what's going to happen in the Middle East? And uh, I, I can tell you in, in the broad sense, I can tell you that there's going to be a great conflict in the Middle East. And the chief protagonists are going to be the Iranians, the Turks, and the, and the, um, and the Russians. That's what I can tell you. Because that's what Ezekiel 38 says. And it's interesting because we look at the conflict with ISIS. And what ISIS has really done has scrambled all the eggs. And the amazing thing about ISIS, as was happened in San Bernardino, the terrorist attack in San Bernardino had one singular effect. It galvanized opposition to jihadist-based Islam. And unfortunately has carried over to victimize even people who are not even guilty other than the fact that they're associated with Islam in some way or another. But aside from all of that, it had the effect of really galvanizing people against something. And what ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the rest are doing is they're galvanizing the Islamic world ultimately against them because they threaten their very power structures. And eventually they will be dealt with. Eventually, after the eggs have been scrambled, there will come a point where all of these forces were coalesced. And the sad thing is, biblically, when they finally work this out in the Middle East, then they're going to be unified in targeting Israel and seeking to remove them. And it's not going to work out well for them. Because the Bible says they're going to be destroyed. That there will come an invasion... It's a battle of Gog and Magog, and they will be destroyed, and they will be obliterated. And that's why in a previous message I talked about the, the end of Islam, at least as a significant force, because what's going to happen in the aftermath of that is Jerusalem is going to become the capital of the world. Do you realize that Jerusalem is unique today? Because ever since 1948, when Israel was declared to be a nation, it has been called an international city. It was, it was supposed to be governed by the Pope. Divided amongst the three world religions so it wouldn't be a point of conflict. Well, <clears throat> the Muslims who controlled Jordan at the time didn't, wasn't willing to give it up. And then the Israelis captured it and they aren't willing to give it up. And now it's a point of major conflict. But from the book of Revelation, it seems every indication that one day that Jerusalem is going to be ground zero. It's going to be the capital, that the Antichrist is going to set up his capital in that city, and it's going to be integrated within this international, not only governmental system, an economic system, but even religious system. Now, to say that at this point in time seems so far-fetched. I mean, we can sit back and say, well, how in the world is that going to happen? And the answer is, it's not going to happen in the world. <laughs> it's going to happen in the heavenlies, that God says, I pull history to me. I don't have to go into history. I draw all things to me. And God says that's how it's going to unfold and it's going to take place. So that when we look at these things and the Antichrist sets up his kingdom and the Asian powers, what are they composed of? Well, we're not sure right now. Because again, all of that is in flux, what's going on in Asia right today. Because even though we see China as being this great threat, they are in the process of building diplomatic bridges and economic bridges with all the countries so that even though they're struggling over these little atolls and islands and so forth, it, they're forging agreements so that Vietnam now is in negotiation with them about certain portions of the China Sea. And same way South Korea today right now has just signed an agreement to work together with the Chinese. And it's all going to kind of come together 
together. And it says the kings of the east will come and fight against the Antichrist. Why? I think it's because he's going to freeze them out of the economic system. He's basically saying you either submit to my authority or you get frozen out. You see, we often worry about the Chinese buying up everything in America. You know what the Chinese worry about? That we won't buy everything they sell. What are they going to do with it? There's a need there for the markets. And that's where, you know, some of the things we're dealing with, when you talk about the sanctions that can be imposed by governments upon and national entities, what we have done to the Russians right now, because of their invasion of Crimea and their invasion or involvement in the Ukrainians, we have created an economic embargo that is wreaking havoc on the Russian economy. When we were in Russia just back in November, I was shocked because the ruble had lost half its value. I mean, it was good for me. A buck went a lot farther, but their economy was struggling, and they're going to be bankrupt by the end of 2016. They're going to have no more cash reserves because the oil prices have plummeted, and the sanctions that have been put up have created all sorts of economic difficulties, and it's just really, we worry about their invasion or their involvement in Syria. Believe me, they're not going to be there that long. They can't afford to stay there very long. This is all, and it all comes into what? When part of the world decides we will not allow you to do business, sanctions become powerful forces for controlling economies. And the, the end result is that we oftentimes, because we are part of the, what has been the most powerful uh, entity, militarily, economically, and even socially in the world, we have a certain sense of invincibility as Americans. I was just reading an article in, in every, I'm subscribed to a thing called Strategic Forecasts out of London. It's really interesting because they were talking about Christmas. And they said, you have to understand that Christmas has become a cultural movement that is changing the world. Not Christ, but Santa Claus. So that it's so impactful that Somalia just outlawed the celebration of Christmas because it's contrary to Islamic traditions. Because it's having, it's westernizing their culture. And you look at this influence that goes out amongst the world, and we become so accustomed to being that, and yet something that I have been talking about for a long time is that we have built out on this limb so far that it's going to eventually break off. There's no way that we can un unendingly finance our lifestyle. And, the, and we will come, and people often ask me, where does America fit into last time's prophecy? I'll tell you where I think it fits into it. Uh, nowhere. Because the simple fact is, I think that we're going to come to a place where we can no longer afford to support our military system. We can no longer afford to do it. There comes a point where you just don't have the money to do it anymore. We're, we're so, the only reason we've been able to maintain our, our place in the world is because we can print money and, and the dollar is the, is the reserve currency of the world. But that's changing even as we speak. So that you realize that there is a point where it all comes to an end. And the massive presence of our military around the world will get to a point where it cannot be sustained any longer. And suddenly the world's going to reorient itself and readjust itself. In the same way that the Soviet Union was able to collapse just like that and go into, I mean, it was crazy when the Soviet Union, some of you 
were living there. I know you can tell me stories that I don't even know. The same thing can happen here. Why do I say such depressing things? Because I'm a serial downer. <laughs> this is my gig, man. No. I think that as Christians, we need a degree of reality when we look at our place in this world. Because we have grown up within the context of our experience, we can't even imagine going through the kind of difficulties that many Christians around the world are going through right now that are really suffering severely and hardships that we can't even imagine. That we talk about the, the persecution of the early church, and yet in the 20th century, it's estimated that as many as 20 million Christians, or at least people even professing Christians, were martyred. The largest number of martyrs in the history of the world was in the 20th century. And it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's not getting better, it's, it's getting worse. And to think that it would never touch our soil, well... When I go back to Jesus' words that we started with tonight, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn from the faith. Why would they hate us? They would hate you because you're religious, you're not spiritual. That's the problem. It's become common uh, conversation, even within the church, saying, well, I'm not religious, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm a very spiritual person. The nice thing about being spiritual is it's so non-defined. You can just kind of float around and not really land anywhere because I'm just not into religion. But again, we talk about fundamental. We talk about dogma. Religion is not necessarily a bad term unless you hide behind it. The whole point is that you're going to find that if you're committed to something, that's going to make you a target. If you're, if you're dogmatic instead of being flexible in your theology, so that more and more there's this encroachment saying, well, what does it really, really matter if Jesus is God or not? Does it really matter if he was born of a virgin? Does, does it really matter? I mean, we start going through these things and people saying, well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, what, what if he doesn't come back? I mean, the second coming, that was probably just something they talked about. He's not really going to happen. And more and more we find within the Christian community. In fact, uh, Barnes Group did a research survey of, of Christians, and they found that only 9% of people who profess to be Bible-believing, born-again Christians actually agree with biblical teaching on, on eight key points of doctrine. Only 9%. The vast majority are kind of playing the field out there with their theology. They're going to have trouble with you because you're an absolutist and not a relativist. You're an absolutist. You're not a relativist. What does absolute mean? It means that there are certain things that are absolutely true and they're not negotiable. That Jesus is God. You know? That the Bible is His Word. And you start subscribing, you start standing on that, you will find that if you're not willing to budge on that, when, you're, when you come to a point where you actually call certain things sin and saying, but that's sin that suddenly you, you've become intolerant. And what I find is amazing to me is the illustration that's been used over and over again so much that I'm reluctant to even use it, but it's so good, it fits so well, is that whole concept of the frog in the kettle. And for the two of you who have never heard it, let me explain what that means. 
This is one of those things you say, don't try this at home. It should only be done by a trained professional or somebody who likes boiled frog. It's supposedly that if you take a frog and you put him in a pot of water and then you turn the heat on very low, most of you ladies know this, two guys know this, but most of you ladies know this, that at a low heat, eventually that water will boil. But the thing is, a frog's sensors are not sensitive to slight incremental changes in temperature. So if you were to drop the frog into a boiling pot, it would leap out immediately because it would recognize it was not a friendly environment. But if you just raise the temperature a little bit at a time, it'll just sit there and roast. And that's really the dynamic, I think, that, that we are dealing with in, in terms of our place in this culture that, as I've tried to illustrate tonight, is that the world that you and I live in is changing dramatically. Some of us who are older, we look back, and I remember the, the place I grew up in a childhood, and, 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 and keep in mind that we tend to nostalgically fantasize that it was better then than it is now, but people were still sinners who needed Jesus then as they did tonight, and they did bad stuff and all the rest. But I realized that there was a, a certain value system that was a commonly held, and it tended to be biblical. And today, that is not the case. In fact, it's gone far to the other extreme. And when that happens, you find that there's this antithetical relationship, this conflict that begins to build between people who are followers of Jesus and those who find following Jesus irritating. Do you realize that there's actually one group that has proposed that it become illegal for people who deny climate change to, to speak? They want to actually have them prosecuted? They're so, so... And you have to understand that we live in that kind of world where people don't understand or even care to understand. And it's changing all around you. So that one of the things I've recognized in coming here tonight and sharing some of the things is that there's a very likelihood, high likelihood, that there are going to be people who are just going to be irritated with me because you say this kind of stuff. Because we don't want to hear it. And even in the Christian community, somebody asked me, why is it that so few pastors talk about this stuff anymore? And there's a couple of reasons I've come up with. One is, it's a lot of work. I've been spending the last week you know, bleeding my brains all over my computer. So, I mean, I, it's, I wouldn't wish this on you, on anybody, especially my wife. But, so it is hard. It's a lot of effort. But also, people want to feel good. They want to hear stuff that's not fun. They don't want to worry about the future or think about it. And I'm not recommending that you worry about the future. But I would simply say this. You have to understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, <laughs> we have to understand that we are going to face challenges to our faith. And I, I personally hope I am wrong. I mean, I'm wishing hard times upon my grandkids. <laughs> but quite honestly, I, I fear for them. And I fear for the world they come from. And I want Jesus to come back. But we need to understand we live in a world that's changing dramatically around us. And it's not that far away from us coming to a place where we are in a very conflicted context within our culture. It's not that impossible to think about it. 
You know, that's, that's where we look at the example of what happened in Nazi Germany, which one of the most educated and advanced cultures of the world became this horrible place. And people, they've studied it for decades. How did this happen? How did this culture get twisted? And it's just a matter of process. It's just a matter of propaganda. So what do we do? How do you and I respond to this? Well, part of the thing I, I said in the beginning was we have to recognize that these things are a function of the way things work. We, we, we know what the world is going to come to because God says it's going to come to that. We don't know when. We don't know. I can't tell you time frames. I can't tell you specific processes, but I just know that these are things that are going to happen. The Bible's very clear about that. And I also know that people who are becoming, promoting these things, basically, he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the Lord, the Lord gives them over to a strong delusion. He says they don't want to know the truth, and so he gives them over to a strong delusion that they'll believe in a lie. What do we do about that? Well, that's where, first of all, we need to be people of prayer. Because here's the problem. If we don't pray for people who trouble us, we will start to hate the people who trouble us. And we become like them. We become like them. Seriously, Christian, let me ask you this. Is prayer a serious part of your life? Really, honestly. I mean, most of us, you know, trying to drop our head and go, well, yeah, I should more. And we need to be people of prayer. We really do need to be praying. We need to be asking God to strengthen us in our own convictions and our own faith that we would, because the point is, if difficult times come, you're not going to all of a sudden become strong in your faith. As someone once said, you die the way you live. <laughs> and the simple fact is, when you are tested in your faith, you find out where your faith is and how strong it is. And you may be looking at difficult situations that you're going through right now in your life and you're thinking that life has been unfair to you and you wish they would change. Has it ever occurred to you that God may be trying to build you up, that he's allowing you to go through some hard times because he's trying to teach you how to trust him? I know that's not something you want me to tell you. Let me rephrase that. If you come up here and I lay my hands on you, I'll make all your problems go away. Come out of them, them deaf and dumb spirit. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could. But I came to discover there's a whole lot of ugly stuff that God makes me go through in my life because he is trying to bring me to a place of complete dependence and trust in him. To believe that when I get on my face before God and I pray that heaven hears and the universe moves because I've asked in the name of of the man who made the universe. He's my father. That his spirit lives inside of me. And when I talk to him in prayer, the universe is moved by the very prayers that I offer to God. That when you begin to recognize we have that kind of power, that I look at this kind of stuff we've been talking about and think, how sad. Because the tragedy isn't that they're going to mess up our lifestyle. And if that's where you're fixed, then you're in the wrong place spiritually. And you really need to, to, to work that out with Jesus. Because, yeah, this world may get really ugly. It may get very different than what we like. 
But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he wants to build you up and strengthen you in your faith so that we can love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. To love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Because that's how Christ manifests himself in the world. It's Jesus on the cross saying to the very men, praying to the Father for the very men who had nailed him there. <laughs> I mean, and, and we get this image of Jesus up on this great big 12-foot post, you know, and even the height I'm standing is not even accurate. Jesus' feet were probably barely above the ground. You don't have to put a man 12 feet in the air in order to crucify him. You just have to make sure he can't put his feet on the ground. And they're gambling for his garments as closer than I am to the front row here. And they can hear every word. That's just how they record all that stuff. Well, he wasn't in Duluth when he said it. He was right there. He was in their face. And, and he's hanging there. And, he, and they're arguing and gambling over his garments. And he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. So you want to talk about politicians and political leaders and all these kind of stuff and we get all filled with vitriol and angry and uptight and how could they and they did this and I can't believe that and don't they know what the constitution says and the heart of Jesus is Father forgive them they have no idea because these men who are and women who are promoting this stuff are facing an eternal consequence because they don't know Jesus not because they want one world government, not because they're socialists or communists or whatever you want to brand them or however you want to refer to them or maybe even, even they've gone to the farthest extreme of, of immorality of becoming a Democrat. You know, it doesn't matter where you want to go with that. The kind of mind things, the reality is that there's only one reason why a person doesn't get to go to heaven. It's because they don't know Jesus. And we should be praying for these souls that they might be saved. And, and the people that we're around, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, it's one of those kind of things that we just so underestimate the power of that. Just to pray. Not special prayers, not unique prayers, not eloquent prayers, not long prayers, not profound prayers. Just simple praying, oh God. And when we start spreading that out, we start praying for people. I remember Ruth Graham one time said, I sit and I watch the news and I write down the stories and then I pray for those people. I pray for them. And that's what we, we need to do. We need to be people of prayer. We don't need to be people of politics, but we need to be people of prayer. Now, if you're in politics, fine, but just don't make it first. Make prayer your first thing. And as we pray, we change our world. And more importantly, even when the people you're praying for don't change, you do. You do. And let me tell you, I'll warn you, when I got really serious about praying about stuff, I started seeing things in myself that I didn't want to see. <laughs> I came to realize what a petty man I was, what a selfish man I was. It's not, it's not for the lighthearted. But it's so wonderful to feel the cleansing grace of God as he begins to move. 
Because the message the world needs, this, the world that we're living in is going to become an environmental disaster. Again, read the book of Revelation. It's a mess. God is in so much trouble. The EPA is going to be so in his face. <clears throat> and as one of his servants, I want to report him to OSHA. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> but as we humble ourselves before God and just say, God, move in my life, move through my life, move in the lives of these people around me that I have to deal with, we can change the world. You know, I pray for our president. I mean, I'm just, because I can't get out of my mind what it would be like to be the most powerful man in the world and suddenly stand in the presence of the God of the universe and to be able to say, I didn't use that power for your glory. I used it for mine. It's a terrifying thought. So friends, I guess if we're going to make a resolution this year <laughs> and we're going to develop an action plan for 2016, let it be simply that we've determined that we're going to be people of prayer. That husbands and wives, that you make a commitment that every day they're going to find a time in the morning or the evening or wherever it's convened, however it works, to at least sit down together and just say, let's agree together in prayer. To be willing to do that in whatever context or opportunity that you begin to drive to work in the morning instead of listening to the latest hits or even Christian radio. Just to turn it off and just use that 10, 15, 20 minutes or whatever it is just to pray and ask God to go before you and, and use you for his glory. That you, you pray over your meals so that your kids can see that you look to God as the provider. That you look at your paycheck and you say, God, what, what do you want me to do? How do I manage what you've given me? You just start becoming people who make prayer a reference point for everything that you do in your life. That every conflict, every argument, every issue, that is something that you begin to revert to prayer. Because what does the Bible say? What did Paul say to the Ephesians? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against politicians. It's not against the new world order. It's not what it is. It's against the spiritual forces, the principalities of darkness, the demonic forces that are active and engaged and involved in our world and bringing all the hurt and the harm and the destruction, the poverty, the suffering, the bringing all this into our world. That's where it's coming from. It's coming from the pits of hell. And we can't fix that through our own energy. There's been more money spent in the last 20 years to alleviate world poverty in the history of the world. And after hundreds of billions of dollars, the number of people who are still going to bed hungry every night has stayed the same. I remember the first time I was in India. And I came to realize, I found out, I had a camera uh, around my neck. I was taking pictures of everything. I used to take pictures of everything. I was very annoying. And I suddenly realized that this camera that at the time, back in the 80s, I, I had paid like $300 for 
was taking pictures of people who got paid less than a dollar a day. That I had a year's wages in many cases hanging around my neck and I didn't even realize it. And I found out from some of my interpreters and translators that just the very fact that I had this hanging around my neck immediately said wealth to the people that I was trying to minister to. And I asked one of the gentlemen, I said, does it bother you that we Americans have so much? And he said, no, it's not your fault. He said, sin and Satan has done this to us, not you. We're poor because we worship idols. We're impoverished because we worship idols. We're diseased because we worship idols. And we are reaping the consequence. And until we repent of our sin, we will continue to be impoverished and diseased. And I remember I just, it blew my mind. The battle is not an economic one. It's not a political one. It's a spiritual one. Satan has taken people captive. He has deluded them and he's seeking to destroy them because they bear the image of their creator and he hates the creator and he wants to destroy anyone and everything that has his image. This is where we are to fight our battle. This is where we're going to fight. We fight on our knees. We plead to God. We plead for those people around us. We plead for our family members. We plead, we plead for people. We, my wife and I have this list that we go through mechanically almost sometimes, but all of these people that we know who don't know Jesus, we just pray for them, pray for them, pray for them, pray for them, pray for them. and God's doing stuff. And the reason I believe that it's for reasons that I will never know. In 1969, my wife, who I actually, I met her in the seventh grade. She was a hottie and I was a naughty. <laughs> she was something to look at and I was 12. <laughs> she thought I was funny. Ladies, no guy wants to be considered funny. Anyway. But that was it. I mean, it was like, we, you know, she lived in a different world. She dated rock stars, and I, I was as dumb as a rock. And it was just like, we were just in two different orbits completely. And she got saved. She watched Billy Graham on TV and gave her life to Jesus. She's the only person I ever know who watched Billy Graham on TV and got saved. <laughs> I'm sure there are many, but she... She gave her life to Jesus. And then she started praying for reasons that she doesn't even understand. She's prayed for two things. She prayed, one, that I would get saved, and two, that I would marry her. And I've put that one on her ever since. I said, don't you, know, don't you complain. But I mean, where did that come from? But you know what happened? When she started praying, within two weeks, I got saved. And when she began to pray, my life began to go through just changes. I mean, it just really was going downhill really quickly. And I found myself asking Jesus to come into my life. That's a short version of a long story. But I came to faith because someone was burdened in their heart to pray for my soul. 
And there are people in your world right now who probably don't have anybody to pray for them. But if you know them and they don't know Jesus, you should be praying for them. And you should ask God to burden your soul for them and to get in your face before God and just plead for their souls. And you don't even have to, like I said, my wife and I do it kind of mechanically. We just go through this, Lord, we pray for this one, we pray for this one, we pray for this one, we pray for this. We just do this sometimes twice, three times a day. We just go through this list. I've got it memorized. I don't even have to look at it anymore. But God is working. God is moving in people's lives because we pray. Your life is going to go by really quickly. My life's going to go by even quicker. Let's spend it well. Let's spend it well. We want to close by partaking from the Lord's table together. And to me, <clears throat> it's easy for things like communion to become ritualistic in our life. Um, it's one of those things that we can do, because, but we're not really quite sure why we do. And even, even when the pastor explains it, we're not sure what exactly that means. <clears throat> but let me try. Jesus was very clear. He said that these elements, which is reference to the bread and to the wine, that they represent his life, his body and his blood that were given for us. Body and blood is, was a, a metaphorical reference to who you are, your entirety of your life. I mean, we all understand the connection to body, to our identity, but blood is also without blood. The life of the body is in the blood. You drain blood out, you stop breathing. It's just, it it kind of works that way. But beyond all that, Jesus was trying to send a, a very clear message to disciples. He said, I'm giving my life up in payment for your sins that you might not only have life, but that you would live your life in imitation of my sacrifice. You're here on the earth right now not so that you can save the environment. You're here that you might know Jesus and be a vessel through whom God can help other people to know Jesus, starting with praying for them and being gracious to them and being forgiving. And so two things. I, I want to encourage you to partake of the elements as we continue in a time of worship together to come and minister the elements to yourself, to take the bread, to take the wine. But I also, beyond that, really want you to do it with a sense of saying, Lord, 2016 is in front of me. 2015 is behind me. And you may have had a great 2015. I had amazing 2015. I didn't like most of it, but it was an amazing year. And it was really good for me. And I am thankful. I praise him for it. But my concern isn't 2015. My concern is 2016. Who am I going to be in this next year? I want to follow Jesus. I want to know him more intimately, more personally. 
I want to be something that he can use for his glory. And I would just simply say that if you come and take these elements, it's a, a very objective and practical way of saying to God, uh, of acting upon her face, saying, God, I, I want all of me to, to belong to you. I want to save some people's eternal environment because there's one place where the environment is perfect, and that's called heaven. And I, that's my destination. I don't want to live my life as if my destination is here. I want to live my life as my destination is there. And if that's your heart, I invite you to come up as we worship together, as the Lord directs you. Maybe you need to prepare your heart. Maybe the things you need to have a conversation with God. Maybe you need to wake up. But I just invite you to respond and just simply say, Lord Jesus, here I am. 2016 belongs to you. Magnify yourself.